Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. This week I'm joined by longtime listener and now veteran co-host, <laughs> critical transport nurse Roger. Welcome back, Roger. Thanks, Tina. Thanks for having me back. I'm very excited about being back and, and recording another session with you. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. I feel like we just very, very much clicked with when we first, when we met almost immediately. Very much so. Yeah, it's just perfect. Perfect relationship for a podcast where you can just really kind of feed off each other, get excited about mm-hmm. the same things, get upset about the same. That's <laughs> yes. how I felt. I was like, I got to have him back. Got to have him back. This very is too much good. So. Well, thank you. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, We'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. So this week we are going to be touching on a, well, somewhat controversial subject, but we have discussed this many times before on this podcast. I've, I've talked about it, but this week's story is going to be coming from a different, uh, maybe a little bit different angle. It's very disturbing. Obviously, a lot of our bad nurse stories are. This one is no exception for sure. It hits a little bit home for me. So I think passions might run kind of high for me, but I don't know. We'll see. This is the case of Amy Melchert. Amy was a registered nurse who took on the responsibility. She just she made that choice of caring for her mother-in-law who had been released from the hospital on hospice. Her mother-in-law, who was 85-year-old Wilma Melchert, had been hospitalized. She was battling multiple disease processes, including dementia. And her family made the very difficult decision to have her go home rather than stay there in the hospital connected to lines and tubes and spend her last days there at the hospital. They decided it would be better for her to go home and live out her last days in a peaceful environment and have a death with dignity, which is something that 
I talk about all the time. It's, um, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart and something that I feel like it's very important to have these conversations. I remember as a brand new nurse, this was probably one of the most difficult things I had to deal with, just that someone in the hospital in a position of, we've done everything that we can do, the doctors and all the specialists and everyone, they've done everything that they can do. And we're at a point now where there's only going to be a decline and you're looking at spending the remainder of your days in the hospital, hooked up to tubes, hooked, you know, infusions, keeping your blood pressure up, just things that are just not, to me, compatible with a death with dignity. And I've, I do believe everyone has the choi- that choice. Everyone should have that, the option of making that choice. We should not be making that choice for, for people. Exactly. And I, I've had those uh, situations, especially in the ICU, worked in the ICU, you know exactly how it is to have patients that, that come in and, and unexpectedly have an illness where they have not had those conversations and the families are is, is placed upon them to have to make those decisions at, at that point. And I, I feel like that the providers, the nurses, uh, MPs, PAs, they have a difficult job in, in making that co- or having that conversation with, with families about comfort care, hospice, what the future holds for the care of their loved ones. But then it falls on the, the nurse's shoulders to not only reinforce that, but to really demonstrate that what we're doing is is not, you know, is keeping them alive. It's not a quality of life. And without a ventilator or without blood pressure medicines, they would pass probably very quickly. Um, in most cases, they do when, when all of our modern technology and medicine uh, is discontinued, people do pass naturally very quickly. And they, they generally do not linger, especially in the ICU. You know, and it's, it's, it's hard enough being put in that position as a family, but then you, you're faced with that as a nurse and as a healthcare provider for a family member that you're having to address those needs. And, and possibly I, I experienced that in my own life uh, with my father, and supporting my mother and and making the decision on the final days uh, of what that was going to look like for my father and supporting her in the decision to to bring him home under hospice. So I've personally experienced that. I have professionally experienced that. It's hard all the way around. And to take the responsibility of bringing someone home can't be understated. And her being a nurse, she should have understood what you know, and I, I, I think she did, and she seems to be a very selfish individual, and and kind of, and I don't, it, I don't know if there was something running through her mind at the end, you know, of of okay, well, you know, we can hasten this and 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 make this happen a lot quicker, and it won't have an impact on on our personal lives, but it, it just floors me the decision making process that that she did or did not do in in her mother-in-law's care yes uh, i i feel the same way this is so disturbing so state's attorney's office said that on june the 12th this was in 2019 around 5 12 p.m the wood river police department was called to the 500 block of east ferguson avenue in wood river illinois for what was initially thought to be a routine death investigation so she was identified as 
85-year-old Wilma Melchert. She had been under home-based hospice care. So this is not unusual. Someone passes away at home and generally you are going to have. Now, I will say it's been my experience that the police is not necessarily always called if it's this sort of case. And it depends on state to state, I believe. I know uh, here in South Carolina, hospice has conversation with the coroner's office who does all of our death investigations out in South Carolina. Generally, law enforcement is not involved uh, in those cases since uh, the coroner's office is is charged with the investigation of death. I guess if something unusual like this happened that they possibly would call in whatever the jurisdiction is to help investigate. But generally, hospice takes care of everything and they just notify the coroner's office that a a hospice death did occur and uh, is basically handled via the telephone. They don't even, they don't come out uh, generally to do anything. It's expected. And there's there's cases like this at the hospital. I've had to call a coroner many times for patients that passed. It was an expected situation, but you do have to call the coroner, let them know. You kind of, they'll ask a few questions. You kind of dig through the chart answering questions. And they, so for me, they have always responded by saying, well, this is not anything that I need to investigate further, you know, so just move on with sending them on to the funeral home. So, but they are involved, but like you said, it's just Mm -hmm. a phone call. It's just kind of like, hey, letting you know it's what's going on. And by definition, the a physician has to basically say that the life expectancy of the patient is six months or less in order to for it to be for the patient to qualify for hospice. So when she went home, they had already determined that it was not expected that she would live longer than six months. Now, that's not to say that they expected her to necessarily die right away. And a lot of times patients will live beyond, well beyond the six months. They'll live years sometimes, just depending on the circumstances that doctors do the best they can with, you know, those prognoses, but they, they're they just human beings. And at the end of the day, it's it's called practicing medicine for a reason. <laughs> exactly. I know somebody that was on hospice for two years, hospice finally just withdrew and said, if something drastically changes, we'll be glad to take you back. But there's really, there's no reason for you to be on hospice right now. Yeah. And they do reevaluate that. My father-in-law was on hospice for his last days. And it, it, it's something that my husband has told me uh, multiple times that he really appreciates that I encouraged them, he and his brother, to to bring him home rather than have them have him be in a facility. Because I I really did believe that. I believed in my heart. Well, COVID was also going on. And so we were very much separated. And I, I just said, I I think that he is going to be happier. And, you know, it's not easy taking care of someone. He had had a stroke. It's not easy taking care of someone that, you know, you're having to turn and, and clean up and all of those things. But he has told me multiple times that how grateful he is that I encouraged that and gave them the education that they needed to to be able to care for him in those last days. It, it's really invaluable. As I mean, just to, to have that time. 
It's not always possible, but... No, it's not. But I, I think it was, it's probably one of the greatest things that I could have done was take care of my dad. I felt like that, you know, he had taken care of me for a lot of years, and now it was time for me to, to, to repay that, so to speak. But it was one of the greatest honors that I have ever had uh, in my life was to, to be able to take care of him in his final days uh, and that was and it was and and it does help uh, it helped my siblings it helped my mom just really appreciate that he was being taken care of instead of just wondering you know if i leave is somebody going to be here and and take care of whatever whatever need that he he had uh, so having him at home direct visual visualization and and uh, been just being able to take care of him and spend time with him uh, even though he was not lucid a lot of the, a lot of the time, uh, he was at, at the very end. So there were, you know, he had a, a, a period of several hours where he was very lucid, and he would he was telling his stories and things that I had never heard. And I'm like, I asked my mom later. I'm like, is was was that true or was he? I mean, was this something? And she was like, no. As far as I know, those were true. You know that those were things that I knew about. I had just never heard of them, and he just sat there and carried on conversations. And so, you know, if we had had him at a hospice house or he was in the hospital, I would not have had that opportunity to to have that that time with him. If you're in the hospital, we're supposed to be trying to help you. Okay, we can't just now. There, are, there are exceptions to this. There, you can be placed on comfort care, and there actually is a situation in which a patient can be in the hospital on a palliative, quote, palliative care floor and be there in the capacity of more or less comfort care. And these situations are usually because there isn't anywhere for the, the patient to go. And sometimes I've even had to be where, to where they wanted, the patient wanted to go home, but EMS wouldn't take them because they were on so much oxygen that they would there's no way they could have gotten them into an ambulance and home with covid things changed a little bit with high flow like nasal cannula oxygen and but still you know routine transport vehicles just do not have the specialized equipment to do that so that would that would be quite difficult i i remember a patient in the icu that had that need and they you just were not going to be able to deliver that volume of oxygen at home. And so he was one of those patients that ended up going to a med surge floor under hospice just because of his requirements of oxygen. He just could not go home. Yeah. Um, and that you does just could happen. not keep that, that much. Yeah, it does. But it does. even if you're in the hospital, if you are on, if, if you've kind of shifted the focus to keeping the patient comfortable, helping the family cope, you know, trying to educate and help just helping them get through that process, it at least will help them have a better death than if they're hooked up to all of, you know, all the tubes. And, Absolutely. You know, all of those and things. We, our floors would try to mimic as much as they could a, a pleasant environment down to getting, you know, our food services involved and, and then bringing comfort trays to the family so that they had they had refreshments to be so they didn't have to leave. We would make sure that they were fed, that there was somebody always there, you know, and, and the staff always took extra special care of not only the the patient, but of the family. You know, as a nurse, you know, that's 
that's probably one of the the greatest things that I could give back to a, a patient under comfort care mm-hmm. is taking care of family members, and I, yes. I I love doing I love taking care of families as well as taking care of the patients. So that just kind of goes hand in hand. I, I love hospice nurses. With my experience with my dad, and I know uh, several hospice nurses, and they are just phenomenal individuals. Just phenomenal individuals. So the deputy coroner for Madison County went there to the home to investigate and noticed some discrepancies in her medication and also some conflicting witness statements. So Wilma's daughter had been out of town at the time of her death. And in an interview, she told a reporter that she received a call from her sister-in-law, which was which was Amy. And she said she very coldly just said she's gone and her daughter said, what do you mean she's gone? And I'm sure this came as a shock to Wilma's daughter because she had just been released from the hospital that day. They had just picked up the prescription for the morphine at like 2.30 in the afternoon. And Wilma was gone by like four. So it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And when I'm in my mind, immediately, I'm thinking if she was so incredibly unstable that she died within a couple of hours, I'm not saying it's impossible, but that definitely is a red flag that she died that quickly. Very much so. Yeah, there's there's been times where when I was on the transport side and and being a paramedic and, and we we would be taking patients from home to home hospice and, you know, the the overwhelming thing was that they they really want to go home and you know we're not sure how long you know please try to rush as much as you can to you know make sure that they get home because you, you one you don't want them to, you, somebody doesn't want to die in the back of an ambulance when you're on comfort care because you you know you're you're being made comfortable and an ambulance is certainly not comfortable you're not there with family you're wanting to be home and that that you're trying to support the patients and families, their last wishes was to be home. And, you know, there's been times where we've kind of cut it close and in, in getting somebody home and getting them settled. And then they pass shortly after that. But that's unusual. Most of the time, people are part of this. If they're, if they're going home on hospice, they're generally awake, I would say, and part of the decision making. Um, they're not going home on a, a home ventilator at this point. I mean, they're they're able to support their own breathing and airway, and you know they have a, a blood pressure. So you don't anticipate that somebody's going to pass that quickly. Uh, you know, this would this would certainly throw up red flag to me. Yeah, and it did them too. And and Wilma's daughter was obviously very upset about this. She didn't even have an opportunity to, because as I said, she was out of town. I am sure it was. I'm sure it was. It's hard enough knowing this, you know, that the life expectancy is what it is, you know, that she's going home on hospice, that, you know, we're kind of shifting into a different mode. To have this kind of just happen all of a sudden, I'm sure it was very shocking. But they started investigating deeper into what was going on, and the detectives got a search warrant, and they found out that there were actually 13 morphine pills missing from that prescription that had been picked up at, like I said, 2.30 that afternoon. Yeah, and you, you, there's no reason, absolutely no reason why 
you just there's no justifiable reason why those pills would be there's gone. there's nothing about this lady that meant that she was in great deal of pain i mean why because you're 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 taking morphine or you're you're giving morphine for comfort whether it's it's pain or or, or breathing difficulties you're making the patient comfortable and there was really in the the little bit about her medical history that was published there was nothing to suggest really that she was in pain, certainly not irretractable pain, that she would require that amount of morphine. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. Yeah. And the missing morphine pills kind of coincided with a significantly higher level of morphine in her blood than what it should have been given what she had been uh, prescribed. So they started to suspect Amy right away They and started gathering evidence. They charged her with first degree murder And state attorneys had records of text messages that Amy had sent to acquaintances. And they sort of shed some light on her intentions. And they felt like she was primarily motivated by an upcoming vacation. And she also was reluctant to have people coming in and out of her house. It made her uncomfortable to think about having, I guess she's talking about the hospice, hospice nurses. I don't. I, I don't know. Extended family, friends, you know, they hear about it. They, they want to come over and, you know, s- spend some time. Sure. But why in the world you wouldn't just say that at the hospital in that moment, I am not comfortable in the situation. That's all she would have had to say. I am not comfortable with this. And I'm sure they could have figured out something else. I would think that you would have a relationship with your spouse enough to go, okay, you know, we need to have a discussion about this. I'm going to put my nursing hat on for just a minute. This is a lot of work. You know, I'm not saying that that I, I, can't, I won't participate in this, but I can't do it 24 hours a day. And we're on, you know, hospice is not there 24 hours a day. And so what is this going to look like at home? You know, I still, I don't know if she was still working or, you know, there's a lot of decision that, that goes into bringing somebody home. And she's a nurse. She knows what it takes to care for somebody that needs a higher level of care than, you know, somebody that is independent. And, well, you know, she's a nurse. You, you generally have an exertive personality where you, you, you're not shy to speak up. It just boggles my mind where where her decision-making process was with, with all of this, whether it was her being a family member or being a nurse. Yeah, and that's the thing. She was a family member, and I, I feel like because she was a nurse and she's in this position, she's, she's her mother or she's her daughter-in-law, I do feel like it was likely that the family listened to her. And that's what's really sad or one of the saddest you know, things about this is that the family trusted her and then they were betrayed. And then I just, you know, I hope that they don't, but I, they might struggle with feeling, you know, like it was, you know, their fault. Yeah. That guilt, you know, of it, it in, in no way should they feel that way. But I'm just saying it would, it would be hard, you know, you, you would struggle with those feelings of thinking, Oh, my goodness, I, you know, we trusted her. It's just a difficult situation. And one thing that I will say, you know, we've talked about comfort care, we've talked about the situation where patients in the hospital and comfort care at home on hospice or, com- you know, comfort care. And there are different definitions of different, you know, situations. You have palliative care, you have comfort care, you have 
hospice, they're all kind of different. They all have different definitions. You know, they're not the, exactly the same. And, and there are different disciplines. I mean, you have palliative care physicians and nurses. I kind of divide it out. Palliative is like managing a disease process. So if it's like COPD or emphysema, a respiratory issue, it's managing the comfort surrounding that disease process. So what is it going to take to get you comfortable? And you're still prescribing medications at this point. Hospice is where you completely remove all routine medications and it's and it solely surrounds making the whole person comfortable. They're not necessarily taking blood pressure medicine. You know, they're taken off of all of their routine medicines, unless it has to do with comfort. They're just given medications to help with comfort. So that that's how I kind of think of it. And then I think of comfort care of, of being something we do in the hospital. It's kind of hospice in the hospital. I, I, that's, that's how I think of it. When somebody goes on comfort care, it's just hospice within the hospital and that we're taking care of them. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low-dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now, their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new, extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products, and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength, and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there, get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. If you have a patient in the hospital that's that's been put, placed on comfort measures, it's typically that means you are trying to manage their symptoms. You're trying to help them to be comfortable. So you're giving them morphine to help with their work of breathing. And you're many times you they're allowed to eat whatever. It, aspiration precautions precautions kind of go out the window. It doesn't matter. They what is comfortable? Do they want to eat? Let them eat. It's because you don't have to the same worry as if you had someone who were an aspiration risk. Right. And so there are some people that can't drink thin liquids. They have to drink thickened liquids or they have, you know, because they, it will, it is going to go into their lungs, even if they don't realize it, it's going right into their lungs. And so you can't just give them whatever they want. But if they're on comfort measures and that's what they want, it is completely up to them. But one thing I will say, and I, this is sort of a caveat to this. And I say, I'm going to, I hesitate to even go here, but I feel like I have to. So I have heard, I will say that most of the time, the, the problem is that nurses are uncomfortable with comfort measures. They're uncomfortable giving the morphine. They're uncomfortable giving the Ativan. They're uncomfortable allowing the patient to 
to be comfortable and, and give them those things to help with their work of breathing and their pain, not hastening their death. But so, so many times you have to kind of educate nurses on that because they're afraid. They're like, oh, I'm not going to do, I'm not giving them morphine. That's just going to, okay. I have witnessed some some uh, cases where I feel like the nurse was a little too comfortable with pushing the morphine and, and just, it's like, uh, okay, this is, I'm going to say this. I had someone that told me that they had a family member who was at home on hospice, had morphine, had you know, all the things. And they basically were like, you know, they told their family like, no, just give it, just give it, give everything, you know, just give whatever. And I get that. I get the sentiment. I do understand like, don't, don't hesitate to give them some medication to help them if they need it. But you don't, you do don't want to cross the line where you are hastening because there, there is clearly in this situation was one of them. There is a line you can cross where you have gone from allowing them to be comfortable and giving them medication to help them with their work of breathing, which most, a lot of times will actually help. It, it helps them relax and they will live a little bit longer because, so I, I, de- I wanted to kind of warn against that as well, because I think there might be a misperception mis- uh, from some people that work in hospitals that if a patient's on comfort care, it's not going to be investigated. They can, you can give them whatever. No, well, I mean, the death is expected. Right. Please don't be under that uh, false sense of security. That is not true. You still have to follow the rules. You have to give them only what's prescribed. You still, so I just, just wanted to make that clear. And hospitals, I mean, it's clearly when it, when somebody goes on comfort care and the computer system that, that we were using and the orders gets changed and in your MAR it spells out what you can do and how much you can give them and how often you can give them medication. So it, I, I had a I had a hospice patient, well, a comfort care patient, and I just remember looking at the looking at the MAR, going, "Golly, that's a lot of morphine. That's a lot. That's that's often. It's basically every five minutes I'm able to give more morphine, and you know, it's small increments, multiple times, and then there was Ativan on top of that. This patient was very uncomfortable." And so uh, to the point of his his wife was uncomfortable in coming in to the room just because the, the patient was so uncomfortable. And it took hours. And I finally, and this was at night, I was working night shift, and I went to my coworkers and I'm like, I'm just, I'm feeling really uncomfortable about the amount of medication that I'm having to give him. And they're like, is he comfortable? And I'm like, no, not yet. And they're like... <laughs> then you're, you're, you got to keep doing what you're doing. That's so different. That is so different. You know, you are, you do the whole point, the whole point. And I tell people, new grads that I precept all the time, the whole point in this situation is to help them to be comfortable. So don't be afraid. It does seem like a lot you do. It does feel like, like, what am I doing to this person? And maybe people under normal circumstances, you would be hastening their death. But for someone who is struggling to breathe, is that how you would want to, is that how you want your last moments on this earth to be? No, absolutely not. And it's counter against how, what we're taught. I mean, we're, we're there to heal. We're there to um, take care and, and try to move somebody forward in their care. And you just have to really take a step back and go, okay, when I'm looking at 
you know, to go back and talk about care plans and say, okay, if I'm moving somebody forward in their care and looking at their care plan, what does that look like for somebody that, that is dying? And that is, that is making them comfort, comfortable. So you are actually moving them forward in their care. It's just not to heal them, to, to move them back to, you know, their baseline of whatever that was before they came into the hospital. So you're still, you're doing the same thing as a nurse. It's just flipping it to understand that, that moving a patient forward in their care during hospice is is just looking at it from a from a different angle. I, I just kind of have to process it. You know, you you kind of switch those gears, and you you know, you just kind of make that that switch. I mean, it, it it really is going from okay, I'm no longer fixing the problem. I'm going to comfort the patient you know, in the family, and I'm going to be there for that. There's no longer a fix that needs to happen. You know, I'm not monitoring, you know, three blood pressure medications trying to get keep their blood pressure at a, a certain uh, level and their heart rate at a certain level. You know, we're, we're there in a supportive role at, at that point and then carrying out whatever the medications are to, to make them comfortable during that process. Yeah. For me, whenever I've had a patient on comfort care in the hospital that I'm caring, usually what ends up happening is someone is, and it, of course I worked in CVICU. I worked on a PCU. I think I saw it more on PCU than it did on CVICU, but they're there trying to get better initially. And the family is just adamant, like, please do any, everything, anything, everything. They maybe didn't realize how sick they were. Maybe didn't, or maybe something happened suddenly. Maybe, who knows? I mean, sometimes things can just come out of the blue. But we're at a point where things are, it's not going to get better. We're only going to, you know, we're only going to decline. And it's just a matter of how you want to spend those last moments. And so, Basically, I mean, anytime I would have somebody in this situation, I would just talk to the family and I would say, you can look at them and tell whether they're comfortable. And if you feel like if they're not able to speak for themselves, if they're if they're just kind of like kind of out of it and they're not, but you feel like they're struggling, you let me know and I can come and give them, you know, something else or I can, if I don't have it ordered, I can ask for more. And that t- tends to work and you, you just, you just give what's there. It's ordered that way for a reason. If the family is going, oh my gosh, no, her, her chest is just going up and down like so, so fast. It just, she looks uncomfortable. Then, okay, here, I, I'll be right back. And you go and you get them and you push it, you get, you know, and then you wait a little bit, you reassess. Do you think they're okay? Yeah, they're okay. Or no, there's just, okay, I'll be right back. Let me go get some, you know, and then you just kind of take it one step at a time like that. That's, this is exactly why for nurses to have a patient like this is, in this situation, especially one that's kind of like right there at the end of life, I feel like it should be a one-to-one. It's just not realistic in this. It's just not possible, but it should be. I think be. you hit on on something very important, though, that, that, that I would like to highlight. And, and that's that's the opportunity to educate families at, at the very early parts. I mean, even... You know, we're staff is having those conversations before families are really. So, you know, the doc, we kind of know what the direction that, that things are going. Things are not proceeding like we would expect them to. Maybe tomorrow the, the doctors are coming in and going, you know, we probably will talk about comfort care tomorrow with the family. And they may even say, hey, can we have a family meeting tomorrow? Can you, you know, who, who needs to be there? So you kind of are starting to get that 
sense early of the direction that, that this possibly could go. I'm a firm advocate and believer in educating families often and early. I think it just makes life so much easier. People are, are generally more receptive at the end to suggestions. And when I'm talking about education, I'm talking about, okay, you know, we've got a Levo going and this is a blood pressure medicine. And if I don't keep an eye on it, their blood pressure will drop. And, and when their blood pressure drops, you know, that's really incompatible with life. You know, they're not sustaining that on their own. They're requiring this ventilator. They're not over breathing the ventilator. They're solely dependent on the ventilator to continue breathing without this machine. It, you know, they're, they're not going to breathe on their own. So it, it's really, is it's just illustrating the care that's going on at the time and letting families know without this modern medicine, they would not be, you know, it's incompatible with life at, at this point. And, you know, it, it's, and this was certainly in the ICU where people are, are a lot sicker. They're, you know, they're dependent upon medicines and, and ventilators and all, but, you know, just bringing those families in and, and, and having an opportunity to go through the care that's going on. Not only I, I think that it puts them at peace that everything's being done that's, that is possible, but then they, they don't carry that guilt with them. I had a traumatic, um, it was a post traumatic arrest, uh, in a, in a young person. And the father was adamant that he wanted to be the one to take the ventilator off of off of the, the, his son, you know, the doctor sitting there looking at me, like, say something, why are you pushing that on me? And so finally I looked at him and I'm like, sir said, don't let that be the last thing that you do. Let me do that. I said, that's, I said, I, that, that is hard. And I want you to remember your son at a different point than that's the last thing. And he accepted that and he was okay with, with, me doing that and him being coming back into the room after and spending the final moments because um, we knew that he was going to pass as quickly as the ventilator uh, as the the endotracheal tube came out he was going to pass and he did and you know it's just looking and dealing with families and just being there with them and supporting them there's nurses that are uncomfortable with that and and I get it not you know not everybody is good at whatever in, in nursing you know, lean on your coworkers, find the person that is the comfortable person to deal with families and understanding, you know, cultural differences and whatever that means to families during the, the death and dying, dying process. Be prepared uh, for that. If you're, if you know that this person is a, a particular faith and that, you know, you're going to be providing their care over the next couple of days, we probably should be really more conscious of that in our normal routine care. But if you know that this is probably headed to a comfort care situation and you don't know what a particular religion feels about the death and dying process, there's resources that you can quickly look that up. And that means that that means so much to families that you walk in knowledgeable and it may be as simple as going, look, I don't completely understand your, your religion. Can you please explain to me what is expected during this process? Yeah, just the respect you that, you could, yes, that you would show very much from so. asking that question, I'm sure would go a long way, you know, toward helping them, you know, to feel more, more comfortable in that situation. And then you, you will learn something at that point that you can use in the future. So many times my patients have educated me on 
so many different things, you know, that I will, you know, took, I still to this day will remember. So for Amy Melcher, obviously, the, the, the state's attorney uh, felt like she was more concerned about her vacation or f- worried about people staying in her home than the well-being of her mother-in-law. And despite her defense asking for leniency, it's because Amy actually pled guilty. And so they asked for leniency. They said she didn't have a, uh, any criminal history. So they felt like, you know, she would deserve maybe to get off a little bit easier for this. The judge, however, disagreed. And he sentenced her to the maximum because what she pleaded guilty to was involuntary manslaughter. And so the maximum that the judge could give was five years. And he did give the five years to her. And the state attorney, Tom Haynes, said that this was just a severe breach of trust. Obviously, it was and a horrible, horrible crime. It, it, and that's the thing I, you know, back a couple of years, a few years ago, I did a, a show on the hospital down in Louisiana, down in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I read that book. <laughs> yes, yes. That was, it was mm. rough. It was rough. Yes. One thing that I, t- I took away, I learned, I learned so much from doing this podcast. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much. So one of the things I learned, I had a nurse practitioner on when we, we, we did that episode it's not that I learned this, it's that it was brought to my, it, it was kind of brought to the forefront. It's not like it wasn't already in there, but she she was like, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if somebody has their whole life ahead. It doesn't matter if it's a baby with their whole life ahead of them, or if it's somebody who's 99, who's 110. If you shorten their life, then that's murder and it's wrong. You do not have the right. And, and that one day, one day, one hour, whatever it is that they have to spend with their family, that they have to reconcile whatever it is that they need to reconcile that how is that that time that that one hour is no less important than a 100 years that someone else might have. And ever since she said that to me, I it just something about it resonated. And I always think about it whenever there are people in situations like this, it doesn't matter that she was 85. It doesn't matter that she was that she only had six months to live. The fact is that they her family was robbed. She was robbed of her last days, her family, they were robbed of the opportunity to tell her bye. And this was absolutely just wrong. It was not justifiable in any way. And most people believe that it was not any sort of mercy killing that it was done out of selfish reasons. So that's what it that's that's definitely what it sounded like she sounded like very selfish but to back to your point i mean you're you're taking something that's not yours i mean it's stealing well i mean it's you know it, i know that sounds simplistic but you're if you shorten somebody's life you're taking something that is not yours and you didn't have permission to take it and it is so important for us to value life we have to value life and people's the the right to choose whether or not to whatever it is that you, you no one should be able to choose for you and make and I, know, I follow a you. couple of hospice nurses on, on social media and i know one of them speaks to euthanasia uh like in oregon and all in the process that it takes to go through that that is an individual choice and you have to be able to do that yourself her as a hospice nurse can't you know she can be there to guide the process 
but they can't mix the medication. They can't administer it. It has to be on the individual to, to be able to, to do that. So it's down to an individual taking responsibility for that. And in those situations, another person is not doing that for a person. They're not taking that life. They're, they're being there as a part of the process, but it's the individual that, that makes that responsibility and, and takes that on, on themselves. It is absolutely their choice. So it's never a choice for a nurse, a physician, doesn't matter who, to, to make that choice for somebody. Um, we're, we're there to guide through the process to support the family on, on what the options are and then support the family in, until death occurs or you know they move to a different floor. Or And I know you've ran into this situation, Tina, where uh, families were not ready to say goodbye and they wanted everything done. It was, it was down to, you know, I just want them, I want them on the machines. I want, you know, and I'm gonna come in day in and day out and I will see them. And they were just not ready to let go. And those, that's, that's equally as hard. It's hard as a, as a nurse. It is hard. As you know, it's just prolonging the inevitable. And you just wonder what kind of torture the, the patient might be going because they're oftentimes in those situations, they're not aware you're not able to actually interact with them. But I've had times when I've just wondered, do they, are they able, you know, do they kind of drift in and out of consciousness? Do they know what's going on? Are they, are they being tormented in their, in their mind? But at the end of the day, it is their choice. It's the, the patient's choice or it's the family's choice and whatever we have to honor that and respect it. I mean, that's really, that's really what we have to do. I know it's not easy. It's not, it was never been easy it's for me. It's never easy. Yeah. It's never easy. It's never easy. One of the hardest parts of, I think, my job at when I was a paramedic in, in the field was um, making that declaration of death, at, you know, like a cardiac arrest or, you know, there was a traumatic event and, you know, that's incompatible with life and family is there and you're just like, you know, I'm sorry, you know, they're dead. And you have to put it in very simple you know you can't say that they they're gone or they're, they've passed um you know you you have to be frank and and so that they understand that a death has occurred I and mean, you know there's no sugarcoating it and it's never easy telling families that doesn't matter who it is you know i've 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 been there with hospice patients and said yes they they're gone it doesn't make it any easier when, you know, it's a five-year-old that's been hit by a car. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's everybody's life has value to someone down to even somebody in incarcerated. They're somebody's yes. loved one still, Absolutely. you know, they're and and it's a human life. And at the end of the day, you know, I honor everybody's life. Um, that's the way it should you know, be. It's not, it, yeah. It's not, it's not my, it's not my, my walk to have. You know, I, I, I walk my own shoes. I, I don't walk in somebody else's shoes. And I, I just honor them and as, as an individual and as, as a human. You know, everybody has value. You may not be able to see it, but everybody does have value. And I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> I will always say, you know, the glass is, is half full. I will find that silver lining and that redeeming factor in even somebody that has committed a heinous crime. There is something to be learned from that individual. And if there is something to be learned, there is value to that person, you know, that maybe we can stop something happening later on. I mean, you know, that, that may be all that we can, we can uh, glean from somebody's tragedy. 
but it's it's still somebody's loved ones, you know. It's and it needs to be honored. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day, and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Litman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Litman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it, and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes this stethoscope so amazing. Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. Well, I guess that wraps it up for our bad nurse story for this week. For today's good nurse story, we have a really heartwarming story of love, dedication, and determination it spans continents. So this is the story of Julie Boyt. I guess that's how you say it. Uh, she's a 25-year-old nurse practitioner from Los Angeles. She apparently stepped onto Kenyan soil about 17 years ago for what she thought was a short-term humanitarian mission. She was drawn into the beauty of Kenya and to the stories of the people that she met, and she just couldn't resist the pull to stay. She took the bold step of relocating to a small village in Kenya to work on an HIV program. I've talked about HIV. uh, I've had some stories uh, that I've talked about in the past on this podcast. I definitely, it's something that whenever I see something like this, it really touches me. Uh, It's not as big of a deal. At at my age, I remember when HIV was a huge deal. People were horrified of it. I don't think it's quite like that anymore. I don't want to say that it's it's not at all an issue. It certainly is. It's a very serious illness. It can be a chronic disease now. If, if, as long as you're taking medication and, and you, you know, it's for, for vast majority of people, it is now a chronic illness. Yes, exactly. Which is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. What she 
saw there was there there were a lot of people who were nearing end of life in this situation, and they didn't have a lot of resources. The, the hospice options were just not there. So that's why she moved there because of a, a lack of adequate hospice care and rehabilitation for HIV affected adults and children. So she, in collaboration with the local community, founded Living Room International, which is a community-led nonprofit that has since become a beacon of hope, offering hospice and palliative care services to those in need in Western Kenya. So I just love that name. I, I mean, it's it's it seems to be so comforting. And I mean, when you think of being in somebody's living room, I mean, you know, it's like that's just a, a very comforting area you know you're you're there with family i mean it just brings forth so many different views and connotations it's just you know that name just resonates with me yeah i feel like that's uh such a hospice nurse thing Mm -hmm. you know such a such a a hospice nurse way to to name an organization i just love it i love it and i'm sure i mean you you kind of touched on it with you know you know there's Early on in in the HIV AIDS epidemic, there were people that were afraid to touch these patients, and it really took standout nurses. You know that unfortunately that they're they're now passing just because of their age. That that took care of of patients in the AIDS wards and in in the large cities. And I remember dealing from a prison where I first uh, got my start in EMS. We had a a uh, institution that took all of the HIV AIDS patients from the whole state. Uh, this was another state; it wasn't in South Carolina. So they housed a great number of people, and I, my heart broke for the times then when we had to go in. It was so isolating. These inmates were, you know, treated almost less than human. Everybody was afraid to touch them. And I mean, kind of rightfully so. Back then, we didn't know how it was spread. We didn't know, you know, does somebody cough on you or you, you, you're going to die? There's no treatment. That much we did know. There was no modern treatment. And it took years to develop a, a treatment. And there's no cure. But like I said, there's, there's treatment and it, it can be a chronic illness. But that back then, people lived maybe 10 years after diagnosis. I mean, maybe. It was just sad. Uh, it was sad to think that people were uh, almost less than human during during that period of time. And what I saw in the prison ward was really no different than what I saw when patients were were in a regular hospital. You know, there were nurses that did not want to work in those those areas, and that was sad. I I, I saw I did see better during COVID. Nurses were much different during COVID than than what I, I remember. Yeah, it's interesting because I have done a few stories about nurses who kind of stepped up and were really game changers back in you know the eighties when when AIDS was first everyone was sort of first learning about it. And so to think about the way everything looked during COVID and the way that nurses were stepping up and just kind of not even considering their own health. Yeah, it was very different. Very, very different. Very, I very. Yeah. Just a different world we were living in at the time, I guess. Absolutely. I think we we learned quite a bit from that experience, not only from a medical standpoint, but from a humanitarian standpoint. At least I kind of tell myself that sometimes to get through <laughs> the day. But I, I truly think, I mean, after I saw, you know, we, we had the episode we talked about, you know, kind of the PTSD of, of, of COVID, 
you know, one of my flashbacks during that per- period of time was seeing everybody in, you know, all of the isolation outfits and thinking back to the early 80s when we would pick up a, a patient with AIDS and, you know, putting on, we were in Tyvek suits because we didn't know. I mean, you were covered head to toe and you weren't allowed to really have any physical contact with, with patients. So we've definitely come a long way with our precautions and as humans, and hopefully if, if and when we have to deal with the next COVID or, or whatever the next disease is going to be, we've learned from this situation on how to be, be better humans, I hope. Yeah, I hope so too. I think I hope I think we're getting better. I, I do. We are. <laughs> we are. We definitely are. Well, Roger, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hopefully, this will be a regular thing. I hope so. This is um, so, this is so much fun. I love interacting with you. I think you're you're the greatest. You know, I I, I look forward to this all week. When when you sent me the email, I'm like, yes, yes, I get to <laughs> do another podcast with Yay. Tina. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's great fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you for for coming on back on the show and and talking about this very difficult topic and helping to educate everyone. And of course, you guys, uh, you know, if you want to reach out to me. You can reach me at Tina at GoodNurseBadNurse.com. I'm on social media at GoodNurseBadNurse. And you can find us at GoodNurseBadNurse.com on our website as well. And of course, I have to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.